So this morning we're continuing along, we're right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Like I said, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So you can turn there if you want. Um, It's on page 859 in your pew Bibles. So the summer before my senior year of college, I had a job working down in, on the coast of Georgia. I did research on an endangered fish species working alongside a master's student and a PhD student, and it was incredible. I think I've talked about it at least once or twice in sermons, and I've probably only preached here 12 times, so you may be sick of me talking about that, but it was one of the uh, most enjoyable experiences of my life. And every day, uh, depending on the tide, we'd have the, the tide would affect the rivers we were working on, and we'd put the, river, uh, the boat in the river and we'd motor around to get to these different spots where we'd set nets, and we'd try to capture this endangered species of a fish so that we could track their movements around the rivers and know what type of habitat they were using. But as we were motoring around the rivers, we all d- always had to be very aware of the, river si- of the river because with the changing tide, the currents were always changing, the depth of the river was always changing, and there was always the danger of running into a sandbar at 30 miles an hour in a motorboat, which we did at least once and almost got thrown out of the boat. One thing I learned, though, that summer is that the dangers that lie under the surface are often, uh, they often have greater potential to do damage and harm than the obstacles we could see, whether it was a log or that sandbar that was lying under the surface of the water. And that's actually a general principle for life, that the danger you're unaware of is often more dangerous than the danger that you see. And I believe that the work that Satan does to tempt us is often like those dangers that lurk under the surface. I mean, we all struggle with temptation on a daily basis, but I fear that one of our greatest weaknesses is that we're unaware of those subtle temptations. And we're, in general, unaware of how temptation even works. As uh, Pastor Robert Spinney puts in an article that I uh, was reading this week and sent out to our community group, so hopefully some of you read it, um, he puts it this way. If we don't see the enemy, he is free to plunder. Christians can only resist temptation effectively when they have reflected on how temptation works. So in our passage today, we're going to get a picture of the nature of temptation, how temptation works. And we're also going to see how temptation is ultimately to be defeated. So let's go to God's word in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, it is true that we do not live by bread alone, that we live by every word that comes from your mouth. So we ask as we look at your word and apply your word this morning that you would feed us by the words that come from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at the temptation of Jesus, we're going to see that although this event takes place out in the wilderness, just between Jesus and the devil, it has massive implications and massive applications for us in our day today. And our main idea this morning as we apply this passage is this. Satan is still at work seeking to tempt God's people. So we must know how Satan and temptation are to be defeated. Again, Satan is still at work seeking to tempt God's people. So we must know how Satan and temptation are to be defeated. And there are three specific things that I think we must know from this passage. First, we must know how Satan tempts us. Second, we must know how Jesus models resistance to temptation. And third, we need to know how Jesus resisted temptation for us. So we're going to look at that first one. We must know how Satan tempts us. Like I said in the beginning, it's often the dangers that you don't see that are the most dangerous to you. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And listen to this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. He says we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. Are we able to say that along with Paul? Are we not ignorant of Satan's designs? A Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks, put it this way in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Highly recommend that book to you. But he put it like this in his beginning. He said, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these four things, they cannot be safe here, nor happy hereafter. Do we place the same weight on being conscious and aware of Satan's devices and his designs and how he works temptation in us? So our first application for this passage is to take the strategy of Satan that often lies under the surface of the water, and we're going to bring it to light. We're going to look at it. How does he tempt us? And we could go to a lot of passages to look at this. Some of the community groups, I know this last week, were in Genesis 3. That's a great place to go to understand how Satan tempts us. But this passage is also a wonderful place. And we see three things uh, about how Satan tempts us in this passage. First, Satan tempts by questioning God's providence, by challenging God's plan, and lastly, by twisting God's word. By questioning God's providence, challenging God's plan, and twisting God's word. So first, questioning God's providence. At the beginning of our passage, uh, we see that Jesus, he goes out into the wilderness. He's going to spend some time fasting at the beginning of his public ministry. And the temptations that we have, we have three temptations of Satan that are recorded here, are right at the end of these 40 days. And it said that through these 40 days, Jesus hasn't eaten anything. I think verse 2 is maybe one of the bigger understatements in the whole Bible. It says, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Of course he was hungry. He just went out without food for 40 days, and he's hungry. I can't go for a few hours without food, without my stomach starting to grumble and needing to go get a snack. 
But Jesus is hungry, and Satan comes to him in his hunger out in the middle of the wilderness, and he seemingly makes a really reasonable request to Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, you're the son of God. Command this stone to become bread. Why don't you make yourself some food? Look, I mean, if you're really the son of God, if you're really who you say you are, if you're really who your father said you were at your baptism, which we saw just back in Luke 3, if that's really true, why don't you just make yourself some food? You don't really have to go hungry. But really what Satan's doing here in his temptation is a subtle attack on God's providence. He's attacking God's ability to sustain Jesus and to care for Jesus. He was trying to get Jesus to just provide for himself instead of relying on his father's care. And I think we face this temptation too. Satan wants us to think that we're on our own. He wants us to think, especially during times of struggle, especially during times when we're, when we're challenged and we're in worry and other things, he wants to undermine our trust in God's ability to help us and to provide for us. He wants us to think that God isn't taking care of us. He wants us to think that we're on our own and what he wants us to do is be sinfully self-sufficient. He wants us to take us away from God's leading. And that leads us into the second temptation of Jesus. That Satan tempts us by challenging God's plan. In verses 5 through 7, we see the second temptation. Uh, The devil gives Jesus, he gave Jesus this view of all the kingdoms of the earth. And he promised to Jesus, if you'd only worship me, I would give you authority over all these kingdoms. And I would give you all of their glory. What may not be, I think, initially obvious to us when we look at this temptation is that it really was God's plan for Jesus to have authority and dominion over the nations. Part of what Satan is tempting Jesus with is actually part of what God's plan is, that Jesus would reign, that Jesus would be king. But there's a couple issues with what Satan says. First, Jesus, as God, already has authority over not only the earth and the kingdoms of the earth, but he has authority over the entire universe. Satan is tempting Jesus with a lesser version of something he already has, which is something he often does to us in temptation. If he tempts someone who's married with an adulterous relationship, he's he's tempting you with a lesser version of the good thing he's already given you in his marriage. He wants to tempt you with a lesser thing. But secondly, we have to see that there is a specific way that Jesus was supposed to have all authority given to him as the incarnate son of God because of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, Paul writes about this in Ephesians 1. He says, According to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, that's called Jesus' session. He was seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And what he's talking about here is a future, at least back in Jesus' earthly ministry, a future authority of Christ that he would have through his resurrection and through his ascension into heaven and his session. So in a special way, it was the Father's plan for Christ to gain authority and dominion over the world. But what Satan is doing, and again, his temptation is really subtle uh, in some ways, uh, but what Satan is tempting Jesus to do was to have an easier way to get to the end goal. So in essence, what Satan is saying to Jesus is, the Father's plan is for you to have dominion over the world by dying and rising from the dead. 
So what I'm going to offer to you is the same authority, but without the cross. I'm going to give you all those things that you're looking forward to, but you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through that agony. All you have to do is just worship me, and it'll all be yours. William Hendrickson is one of the uh, greatest uh, commentators of the 20th century. He comments on this, and I love the way he phrases it. He says that Satan's suggestion was to try to obtain the crown without enduring the cross. So Satan was challenging God's plan. He was trying to undermine God's plan by trying to provide an easier, more comfortable option for Jesus. I think if we take a a full survey of Scripture, if we read through it and we try to figure out what is God's plan for his people, we're going to see that God's plan includes, necessarily includes, suffering, persecution, hardship, taking up our crosses. And Satan wants to play on our hearts in the middle of these struggles to doubt God's plan. When we think about the work of the church, often the things that God calls us to do are hard, and we think, couldn't we get the same results, but with an easier method? Maybe we do this with evangelism. We say, it just seems so hard to confront sin and to preach the gospel. It's so much easier to just invite people to a fancy show or to let someone else do all the work for us. But we're sidestepping what God's plan is and trying to find a more comfortable and easy route. And that's not how life should be lived. And we need to be aware of how Satan causes causes us to doubt the goodness and wisdom of God's plans by giving us that easy way out. But lastly, we see that Satan tempts by twisting God's word. This is in the, uh, the third temptation down in verses 9 through 11. So Jesus kept responding to all of Satan's temptations by quoting from Scripture. And that's really significant, and we're going to talk about it in the next point. But Jesus is, is quoting Scripture in response to Satan. So Satan tries a new, tried a new strategy. He tried by quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus to convince Jesus to try to sinfully prove his divinity. What Satan was trying to do when he said, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and then quoting from Psalm 91, is he's trying to pit scripture against scripture. And the issue is that Satan is twisting Psalm 91. It's not necessarily that he says the wrong words, but that he rips these two verses. It's verses 11 and 12 in that psalm. He rips them out of the context of the rest of the psalm. Psalm 91 is about God's people resting secure in God because God can protect them. He even talks about God being able to protect his people against their greatest enemies, which is then funny that Satan quotes from it as the greatest enemy of believers, that he's quoting a psalm about God's protection against those enemies. But Satan is is ripping them out of context. So what I think we need to see here is that Satan loves bad exegesis. Satan loves it when we interpret scripture wrongly. He loves presenting to us half-truths. He loves taking verses out of context. And I think this is applicable for us in a couple of ways. First, it should be a huge warning to us not to take Scripture out of context. I think we have the temptation to do that all the time. But if we do that, we're being more like Satan than we are being like Jesus. And we don't want to be like Satan. We want to be like Jesus. But secondly, I want us to think about this and take this seriously because this is really convicting to me. How often do we take verses out out of context to justify our sin? Or to justify giving in to temptation. I really think that's the work of Satan in us. Josh and I have been talking over the last couple weeks on and off about 
uh, Psalm 51 and how people can use and how we can use Psalm 51 to justify sin. We read Psalm 51, we see God's grace, right? To David, even after David had committed murder, even after David had committed adultery. And we're tempted to say, see how gracious God is? I can give in to this temptation because God is going to forgive me just like he forgave David. We actually twist God's grace and instead of using it as a sword to fight against temptation, we use God's grace as license to give in to temptation. We fail to see the massive consequences that David had to undergo for giving in to his temptation. We fail to see how deeply he repented before God. And I think we could like go through scripture and we could multiply example upon example of this. But we need to be aware of that. That in the midst of our temptation, Satan leads us to misuse scripture. To misuse the truth of scripture and to justify our sin. So we've seen how this passage gives us insight into how, to, how Satan tempts us. But it also does opposite too in giving us insight in how to resist that temptation. Part of it is just by knowing how he tempts us. There's also some active things that we see. Um, we must know how Jesus models resistance to temptation. And I think Jesus shows us three things here. He shows us that we must know God's word, we must trust God's word, and we must obey God's word. So I already mentioned it. Uh, in every single one of Satan's temptations, Jesus responds by quoting from scripture. I think that alone is instructive for us, that he knew scripture and that scripture was his weapon against the enemy. But uh, he doesn't just quote from any scripture. Jesus is really intentional about the scripture he quotes from. Each time, he quotes from Deuteronomy. And all three quotes are actually from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. The first one, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. We read in our Old Testament reading, it's Deuteronomy 8, 3. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, is Deuteronomy 6, 13. And it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, is Deuteronomy 6, 16. So all three of his quotes actually only come from one chunk of scripture in, in, in two different chapters. And I think the context of these verses gives us some really uh, neat insight into temptation. So the context of, of the passages in Deuteronomy is Israel, the end of Israel's years of wandering in the wilderness, after the exodus, before they enter into the promised land. And if you look at the context of Jesus' first quotation, the one from Deuteronomy 8.3, you'll notice how similar it is to the description of Jesus' situation here in Luke 4. So I want to read Deuteronomy 2 and 3. His quotation is from 3. And I want you, while I'm reading that, to look at Luke 4 verses 1 through 2. I want you to see how similar Jesus' situation is to the situation of Israel. So here's, Deut here's Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And then the section Jesus quotes, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So do you see that? Do you see the, the parallels? Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, being tested and being allowed to hunger. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, being tested and being allowed to hunger. And these parallels are intentional. Jesus quotes from these verses intentionally. In Deuteronomy 6 and 8, 
Israel is commanded, if you look at the larger context of what's happening, God is commanding Israel over and over to remember his word in the midst of testing. They're to teach God's commands to their children. They're to talk about God's commandments when they sit down, when they walk, when they go to bed, when they wake up. They're told to bind God's commandments as a sign on their hands, as frontlets between their eyes. They're, to, they're supposed to write God's commands on the doorpost and on their gates. They're to know God's word deeply, and they're to trust God's word, and they're to obey it. But the problem is that Israel in the wilderness didn't remember God's word. They didn't trust it. They didn't obey it. They constantly complained, and they turned from God's commandments. So then what is Jesus doing here by quoting these verses? Jesus is presenting himself to us as the true Israel, that Jesus is the one that succeeded where Israel failed. When faced with trials in the wilderness, he knew God's word. He trusted God's word. He obeyed God's word. We see that, see that he knew God's word simply that he confidently quoted from it to combat temptation. We see that he trusted God's word when he said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the midst of hunger, his trust was that God was faithful to his word to provide for him. We see his obedience when he chose to not, not worship anybody but God and not to put God to the test. So the scriptures said it, he trusted it, and he obeyed it. And I think this should point us to the necessary place of God's word in our own battle against Satan and our own battle against temptation. How do we come against Satan's lies other than by knowing the truth? But how can we know the truth if we don't know God's word? We need to be committed to studying God's word. We need to know the doctrines that are presented in there when Satan tries to twist them. We need to know about justification and God's grace, but we also need to know about sanctification, that we're called to holiness, to being more like Christ, lest he make us think that we can be justified and then use that as an excuse for sin. We need to know God's word. We need to memorize it. I used to do a lot of scripture memory. I don't do enough scripture memory right now. I need to know it. It needs to be in my mind and in my heart. I need to be able to respond to the lies of Satan by saying, this is what God says. And I, I always go back and forth uh, on which, I know some of you guys are big C.S. Lewis fans, but uh, I go back and forth on which of the Chronicles of Narnia books are my favorite. But one that's always in the top two or three is The Silver Chair. And I know some of you uh, know this book, and I've probably even talked to some of you about it. But the major storyline of the book, I'm not going to give any big spoilers, is this quest that Aslan, this great lion, gives to a girl named Jill to go find the lost prince of the land of Narnia who had been taken captive by the temptation of a great serpent. Do you see any uh, imagery there? He's really good at that. And at the start of the journey, he gives her four simple signs that are supposed to guide her on her journey. And he helps her, and he, he teaches her, and he trains her to the point where she can say these four signs from memory so that she won't be led astray. And then these are his parting words to her as he sends her on his journey. I think these are great for us. Aslan says, Remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. 
and the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and to pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And now, daughter of Eve, farewell. And I'm not going to give away the end, but the whole story, the whole story of the silver chair can be viewed through the lens of Jill's struggles to remember the signs. Her struggles to fight the temptation to veer away from these signs in the direction that Aslan had given her. So really, it's a book all about temptation, and I highly recommend it for that purpose. And I think our Christian life can be viewed in a similar way, where Aslan said, remember the signs and believe the signs, nothing else matters. We can say, remember God's word, believe God's word, nothing else matters. We don't have any greater weapon against Satan's devices than the sword of God's word. And I just want to give one example of how this might play out in a a specific temptation and how the specific piece of scripture might help us battle that temptation. So we, we sang in our confession of sin that we're a slave to these lowly thoughts, that we seek after other things that may satisfy us, but in the end, those things that we seek after are ultimately going to leave us uh, unhappy, and they're not going to fully satisfy us. So when we're tempted in that way, which we're tempted often, and so much of sin is temptation to, fe- to seek satisfaction apart from God, I think we can quote Psalm 16. It says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can say, No, sin will not satisfy me like Satan says it will. Satisfaction isn't found in opposing God. Satisfaction is found in knowing God. We must be able to combat temptation by pointing to God's word. So far, we've looked at those two points. We need to focus on how Satan tempts us, and we need to focus on how Jesus models resistance to temptation for us, particularly in his use of scripture. But I think if we ended after those first two points, we'd really miss what this passage is primarily about. This passage is much more than just info on Satan's strategy and some tips for battling temptation, although it's immensely helpful for both of those things, and I think it's right to apply them in that way. So it's, it's great to talk about how to fight temptation, but there's one problem that should stand out for us. We have given in to temptation. We continue to give in to temptation, And we're going to still give in to temptation yet before we die. So, is this passage good news for those who in the past have given in to temptation in small ways and in large ways? Is this passage good news for those of us who still give in to temptation and who are going to give in to temptation? Yes, this passage is good news for the tempted. And that's where we see our last point, that we must know how Jesus resisted temptation for us. So we're going to focus particularly on the work of Jesus, something that we cannot do for ourselves, but he does in our stead for us. He was doing more than just modeling a strategy to fight sin. He was accomplishing salvation. And we see this, I think, in two aspects in this passage. And both refer back to Genesis 3. So I know I talk about my time in Georgia a lot. I feel like I quote from Genesis 3 in like half of the sermons I preach, but it's just so applicable here. I have to go there. Um, the parallels between the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Jesus are not accidental parallels. 
And as we see the devil coming to Jesus and as he seeks to foil God's plan, we're supposed to think back to the first time that Satan came and he tried to foil God's plan in the garden by tempting Adam and Eve. In both cases, Satan questioned God's providence, God's care, and God's goodness. He questioned God's plan. He questioned God's word. And his success in foiling Uh, His success in fooling Adam and Eve had massive consequences, not only for them, but for us today. And the rest of the Bible really is a story of how God plans to redeem his fallen people and bring them back into perfect fellowship with him and to destroy that enemy who had tempted them. So how does our passage fit into that story? By presenting Jesus as the new Adam and by presenting Jesus as the serpent crusher. Jesus is the new Adam who resists temptation where Adam failed. I just want to read Romans 5, how it contrasts Jesus and Adam in this way. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So because Jesus perfectly obeyed, both in his going to the cross and dying, but also in his perfect obedience to God's commands, when he was tempted, he has the ability to credit his righteousness— to credit his obedience to us, just like Adam's disobedience was credited to to the rest of the human race. What Jesus is doing is he's creating a new humanity who despite their own sin, despite their giving into temptation, constantly are clothed in his righteousness and his perfection. Jesus resisted temptation for us as the new Adam. But lastly, he's also the serpent crusher. Genesis 3, following the failure of Adam and Eve, uh, we talk about this a lot. God made a promise that one day an offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent who had tempted them. And throughout scripture, there's hope of one who would come and defeat the devil. And we need to see that Jesus' battle here is just the beginning of a war waged with Satan throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. Throughout his ministry, Jesus wages war by casting out demons by healing those who are afflicted by the devil. And Jesus' victory over Satan, it begins in his victory over Satan's temptation, but it culminates in Christ's victory in his death and in his resurrection. I love how Hebrews 2 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is talking about Jesus becoming a man. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, again talking about Jesus becoming a man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to absorb God's wrath, to make propitiation for the sins of God's people, For, listen to this last sentence, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
So the good, good news of Luke 4 is not only that we can know Satan's game plan, it's not only that we can know how Jesus modeled resistance to temptation, the good news for us from Luke 4 is that Jesus was tempted for us, and that though we fall constantly, he succeeded for us as the new Adam, giving us his perfect obedience. And he succeeded for us as the serpent crusher who defeated the devil, defeated the tempter in his death on the cross. So, what do we do when Satan comes to us and he tempts us? We can say, Satan, I know your words are lies. But even more, I know the one who has defeated you. And though you can tempt me, you will never defeat him. He is my victor. And he is my righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to come and live for us, to be tempted for us, to die for us, to rise for us, that he might defeat the power of death, that he might defeat the devil in our stead, that we can have hope, that though we're tempted, that though we're weak, though we're sinful, we can look to him and his perfect righteousness, and we can know that through faith it is credited to us. What good news we have, God. Help us to know that. Help us to remember it, and help us to know your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can stand together. We're going to sing our final song. The lyrics are actually um, printed on the backside of your worship guide instead of in the songbook. It's to the melody of Jesus shall reign where'er the sun. It's a great old hymn that's going to be in our, hymn, in our new hymn book when we finally get around to publishing that thing. Um, so if you don't know the melody, we're going to sing through the first verse twice. It's going to give you an opportunity to hear the melody and then join along. And if you do know it, I know a few of you at least know this hymn. Sing it boldly and loudly. I just feel like this song applies so well uh, to the passage about Jesus' temptation. So grab my guitar and then we can sing. <laughs>